My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, July 24th, 2013. We will be doing our light episode today. for tuning in or listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to stop, slow down, open our Bibles, and read God's Word in context, apply proper hermeneutics, and, uh, you know, in order to properly exegete God's word so that uh, you're not schnookered and bamboozled and hoodwinked by folks who are making merchandise of you by twisting God's word and telling you fairy tales in the name of Jesus uh, rather than telling you the truth about Jesus. Now, once a week, we do what I call our light episode. It's not that the topic is light. It's just that we're dealing with a singular topic, and we've been working our way through a series of lectures delivered by Pastor Jeremy Rohde at Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. We are up to lecture number five on his lecture series on the first epistle of John, John 1, if, uh, 1 John, sorry, 1 John, if you would. So without any further ado, we're just going to dive right into it. Here's Pastor Jeremy Rohde and part five of his uh, lecture series on uh, uh, the epistle of 1 John. Here we go. We left off in uh, 1 John uh, chapter 2, and we had just covered uh, verses 15 through 17 at the end of last week. I want to go through those again with you briefly. Uh, first, let's open up with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, by the light of your word, we pray that you would enlighten our path, that we might know what to believe and how to act here in this world as your Christian people, people who you have redeemed through the blood of your Son, baptized into the resurrection and death of your Son, that we might know our sins are forgiven and have hope for the future that is sure to come, for you have promised it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you recall from uh, earlier in chapter 2, uh, specifically around verse 7, John has instructed his congregation on the importance of love. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, 
and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We see there the importance of love in John's statement. Uh, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Okay? One of the themes that we've seen in 1 John is that the love that God talks about, the love that God's Word speaks about, is always a specific type of love. It's not a universal love uh, that's generic, loves everyone and nothing and all things and nothing indiscriminately. We don't see that type of love expressed biblically. And again, we're going to see that here in uh, chapter 2, verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. So whereas earlier he talks about loving the brothers, specifically loving the Christians, loving the Christian church, here he instructs us specifically not to love the world or the things of the world. The Jesus that many people have in their minds today is a Jesus who loves everything. Right? And if you say a negative word against a false teacher or a false doctrine, or you choose uh, to exclude yourself from a specific religious practice or a specific religious group, immediately it's hurled in your face, Jesus loves everyone. Jesus even loves the false teacher. Jesus would be there. Jesus would do that. Jesus this, Jesus that not the Jesus of the Scriptures. The Jesus of the Scriptures, through His Apostle, here instructs, do not love the world or the things of the world. Okay? Now here, world itself takes on a nuanced term, doesn't it? Uh, here, world in specific means those aspects of the world that are fallen, that are enslaved by Satan, enslaved to sin, that are enslaved to the way of death. We are not to love that. Uh, continuing with John in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. White and black, zero or one, right? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay, so do you see foremost the discriminatory aspect of this love? We are to discriminate between those things that are of the Father and of the Son, those things that are truly good, and those things that are of the world, those things that are not of the Father. In fact, John says very plainly that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if we love the world and embrace all things and all people and all ideas and tolerate it all and think it's all equal, then John says the love of the Father is not in you. That's condemning to, I would say, the vast majority of people's perspectives, Christian and not Christian, here in this country. <clears throat> We see here biblically from the Apostle that it is an exclusive type of love. Now, the things that we are not to love, uh, those things of the world, um, John puts in this way, the desires of the flesh. Anyone want to be so uh, bold as to list some desires of the flesh? Yeah? Gluttony, thank you. Yeah, there's, you know, contrary to popular belief in the church today, there's more than one commandment. We don't, we haven't just retained the sixth and gotten rid of the others. Okay? Uh, so sins of the flesh doesn't automatically mean, aha, sixth commandment. Um, sins of the flesh? What are some other examples? Gluttony's one. Sexual immorality, okay, there's the sixth commandment we're talking about, the one everyone's hyper focused on this day and age. Uh, what are some other, what are some other sins of the flesh? Laziness. Or desires of the flesh? Laziness. Gosh, doesn't the flesh love to be lazy? Okay? 
idolatry in the form of either good health or financial security, these types of things, where we put Wonderful insight, Barry. Idolatry of the flesh that looks toward uh, good health or financial well-being in an idolatrous way. Fantastic. That is exactly the sort of thing that masquerades as good, does it not? I mean, who could be against health? Who could be against money? Right? But these things become idols. So that the chief concern becomes, gosh, how do I scrape out a few more years of this miserable existence? Nice goal. So the desires of the flesh, and, and here I think, I think what Barry's hit on is such a very important distinction, and we see that too in the next one, the desires of the eyes. That the desires of the flesh, of course, are those obviously evil things, right? Uh, the ones that were named, gluttony, sexual immorality, you know, obviously evil things, obviously problematic things. The things that are more subtle, the desires of the flesh that are more subtle are those very things that we have to take a good hard look in the mirror and say, that thing which I think is good and the highest good and where I spend my attention and my time and my money, that just might be my idol. The desire of the flesh that I am in love with. Okay, good point. So now, desires of the eyes. Again, we can think of this in two different ways. We can think about those obvious desires of the eyes that are obviously evil, and we can think of those desires of the eyes that first appear good and only later show themselves to be evil. What are some desires of the eyes? Envy. Okay. So looking with your eye at something that someone else has, and saying, I want it. Right? Looking at what you have and saying, no matter what it is you have, it's what? Not enough. And haven't you found that no matter what stage you're at in your life, no matter how much you have, no matter what you have, no matter what you've just gotten, it's what? Not enough. There's always something else, isn't there? That's the desire of the eye, the insatiable appetite. Okay, well, we can see some of this is manifestly evil. Uh, how are, what are some desires of the eye that are somewhat hidden? What does the eye latch onto and like? How does the eye itself or sight itself become an idol? Okay, uh, let's think about it like this. Remember the, the scripture verse from 2 Corinthians? We live by faith and not by sight. So the eye would like to set itself above faith, and the eye would like to become that which determines truth. Okay? What I see, that determines truth. Uh, maybe a very basic example of this would be doubting Thomas, right? Till I see with my eyes and feel with my hands, I will not believe. Thomas's sight became his idol. His reason became his idol. So we live by faith and not by sight. How else can sight become an idol? Any ideas? How about this? Ask your eye where the Holy Spirit is at work. Easy. The Holy Spirit is at work where there are lots of people, okay, and where there is lots of passion and people all into it, okay? That's what my eye says. I can see where the Holy Spirit is at work. And it's not here, right? Because I can see with my eyes where the Holy Spirit is at work. Wrong, okay? As Jesus says when He describes the work of the Holy Spirit, when we see the Holy Spirit poured out on the apostles, and what they immediately do. What is synonymous with the Holy Spirit? His operation, His work? Preaching of repentance and the remission of sins. So, you can't see that with your eye, because if you're looking with your eye, you might, you might see a little tiny congregation with 15 people in it, and a preacher preaching a long gospel sermon. 
And yet there is precisely the place where the Holy Spirit is at work. Whereas the great big place where all the people are there and everyone's thronging there and everyone's all excited and passionate and the eye is so convinced that yes, there is the place of the Holy Spirit. The eye is wrong. The eye is an idol factory. Okay? So we live by faith and not by sight. It's yet one more way that we are called as Christians to distinguish ourselves from the world and to not love the things of the world. Make sense? Let's continue on with John in chapter 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, which we know what that is, is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's to be repented of. It's to be avoided. It's to be called out and cast down. Verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, John, as he will do throughout this epistle, is painting two camps, two categories, two ways, two identities, and you're one or the other. You love the world or you love Christ. You love the world or you love the Father. You abide in darkness or you abide in light. And we are called as Christians to walk in in the light and not the darkness and to denounce the things of the world. So here we see that John, while he is known as the apostle of love, he is also not afraid to tell us that we must not love the ways of the world. Questions or comments? Should we move on to the next section? Okay, let's go on. Uh, verse 18. Here John again calls his congregation children. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Now let's pause here. And I want you to take this in, how important this is. This is John, the same John who authors Revelation, who says what? It is the last hour. Okay? So unlike our friends who swim around us in the waters of American evangelicalism, uh, who believe that Revelation is like a great big... Uh, Ouija board that we ought to have uh, the book of Revelation open and the newspaper open and we ought to be divining where we are in the book of Revelation, okay? That Revelation, the author of Revelation in the first century, John, had no idea what he was writing about because he was writing about the 21st century. Um, put all that nonsense away. Here you have the author of Revelation himself saying, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. So now many, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. You see, the message of Revelation and the message of John repeated here is that the last hour is now. First century. That last hour continues, if you will, to the very present. But at the time of John, at the time of Paul, at the time of the apostles, what are they waiting for? They are waiting for the trumpet to sound, the angel to shout, the Lord to descend. They are waiting for the Lord's coming because everything that needs to be fulfilled has been sufficiently fulfilled enough for Christ to come. There, in the first generation, not waiting for, uh, what was his name? Saddam Hussein. The great Antichrist. Whoops, no, never mind. Okay, who's the next big dictator? He's got to be the anti. Oh, no, okay, not him. And so on and so on ad nauseum, the way that evangelical theology works these days. It's all wrong-headed. John says it is the last hour. What John does is takes us into uh, the eschatological, the end times, the last things, dimension of the world that because Christ has, the Word has become flesh, and that flesh, in taking in flesh, He has taken upon Himself not only the flesh of all humanity, of all time and place, but also the substance, the material of all creation. 
and He has taken all creation into His death, and by virtue of His resurrection, He is pulling all of creation back through again so that He is making all things new. Paul says of you in particular, it is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision that matters, but a new creation. And we await a new heavens and a new earth. All of these things take place right at Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. That is the beginning, if you will, of the last hour. Because why? It's the end of the age. It's the end of the old cosmos. It's the end of things the way they were and business as usual and sin and death. It's the end of all that at Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. So anything then that is opposed to Christ coming in the flesh, to Jesus being the Christ, to Jesus' death or Jesus' resurrection, anything opposed to these core elements of Jesus is necessarily anti-Jesus or anti-Christ. And that's exactly John's point as he coins this term. Most scholars believe right here, uh, the first time the word antichrist is most likely used is right here. Um, you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Alright, in verse 19 then, uh, he says specifically, they went out from us. Here finally he identifies that group that have left this church to which he's writing, that have gone out from us. Okay, and already we've seen hints of that, haven't we? It's because they did not abide in his instruction. They did not keep the word of the Lord. And in departing, then they also showed themselves to be loveless to their fellow Christians. They went out from us, and John says, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Okay, so here ends his description then of those who have... uh uh, gone out from the congregation over which John is pastoring. Questions or comments? Yes? Yes, potentially. Those who have gone out from us are potentially antichrists. He's going to go on and to describe that uh, in the next few verses, uh, so maybe maybe we'll answer your question there in the next few verses. No. Okay, let's go on a little further. Uh, just picking up in the middle of 19, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Now, what we're going to lose in the English is, uh, uh, is what this word anointed is. It's a play on words. The word is chrisma in Greek, which is uh, a play on the word Christos. Okay, to say that Jesus is the Messiah, okay, in Hebrew, is to say that Jesus is the Christ in Greek. Both Messiah and Christ mean anointed one. Okay? So if we think of Jesus is the Messiah, that's saying Jesus is the anointed one. Um, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. Here, John says, but you have been anointed. You have been chrismed. You have been Christed by the Holy One. Ultimately, baptism. Yeah, where we have been united with Christ through baptism, right? Um, where we have been clothed in Christ, Paul says in Galatians. So to be anointed by the Holy One is to be chrismed, to be Christed. And that's precisely what happens to you in baptism. So John says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? 
that Jesus is the anointed one. Now you see the specific heresy of those who were departing from this congregation. They were saying that Jesus, whoever he is, he is not the Christ. He is not the anointed one. Maybe he was a great prophet. Maybe he was a wonderful thinker. Um, maybe he was X, Y, or Z, but he was not the Christ. He was not the divine son of the living God in human flesh to bear the sins of the world on the cross. That's not who he is. Now, I want you to stop and think critically about this because the world has nothing but wonderful things to say about Jesus. Most false religions have nothing but wonderful things to say about Jesus. Okay? But in all the wonderful things that everyone says about Jesus, answer me this, is He the Christ? Is He the divine Son of God? Of course not. Well, that's who He claims to be. So either He is a liar, or He is insane, but he certainly can't be the great man and prophet you think him to be because he claims for himself that he is the Christ. So either he is or he isn't, and you say he isn't. So then you also can't hold that he is some truthful and great teacher. You must call him a liar. And all we're doing here is unraveling the truth that is hidden behind all the pious lying that Jesus is a great prophet and a great teacher, and Jesus would have said this and done this. Don't you love that? Um, when atheists quote, well, this is how Jesus really was. <laughs> okay, great. Glad. Glad you know him so well. Uh, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Continuing on in verse 22, this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So to deny the Son, to deny that Jesus is the Christ, is to not have the Father. Which is the same way, if you don't have the Father, you don't have the Son, you don't have the true God. You don't have the true God. So any religion wherein Jesus is denied so also the Father is denied. The true God is denied. Okay? No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Okay, now look at what John says. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So the Antichrist takes many forms, doesn't it? Yeah, many, many forms. Is many different Heresies as there are that deny the Son, that's how many antichrists or anti-Christian messages there are in the world. Okay? But I want you to see that John doesn't mince words. It's not, well, whoever denies the Son has, a, has an equal opportunity to God through Buddhism or through Islam or through the Baha'i faith or whatever it is. That's not what John says. John says, this is the antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. In other words, that, that any religious teacher who denies the Son, John, the apostle of love, would say, Antichrist. Antichrist, Antichrist, Antichrist. That's how he would describe the false teachers who deny the Son. Not nice guy. Not, well, we have some differences. Not, let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Many paths to the same God. Not John, the apostle of love, who says, Antichrist. You see, this is very unpopular. John would have been leading the charge of the unpopular pastors if he were alive today. Everyone in the world would hate John, would think he was bigoted and arrogant. Because why? John claims to know the truth. And John claims that all other ways are false. All other ways are lies. All other ways are antichrist. John was, uh, in this regard, exceedingly intolerant. All right? 
Uh, John would allow, of course, he doesn't say, so let's all follow these people who left us and do jihad on them, right? That's not John's way. Tolerate in the sense of, it's not our job to punish people or convert people by the sword or any such nonsense. But at the same time, hold hands with them and sing Kumbaya, pretend our differences aren't that great? Absolutely not. Antichrist. Now, what I want you to see, too, is that this not only applies to those outside of the quote-unquote Christian faith, this word of John also applies to those within the Christian faith. Any who within the Christian faith, as these people who went out from us undoubtedly still claimed to be Christians, though they denied that Jesus was the Christ, so too, any within the Christian faith who deny that Jesus is the Christ, who deny that full meaning, John would unabashedly say, Antichrist. All right, we are going to pause the lecture right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this episode or any other episodes of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe. Hit the subscribe button over there at Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lecture on the epistle of 1 John. Stay tuned. We will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Good morning, New Song Church. As you know, we are here to worship our wonderful and almighty God. Because our God is bigger than you can imagine and is capable of more than you can imagine. Let's give it up for God. Isn't it so great that our God can do anything? Virgins can't give birth. Oh, you're absolutely right. I almost forgot. God most certainly cannot have virgins give birth. But he is certainly almighty. Well, he can't be bodily present in the Lord's Supper either. Yep. I can't believe I almost missed that one. He cannot be bodily present in the Lord's Supper, but he is definitely all-powerful. Yo, Pastor Preacher. Remember, God can't violate our free will neither. That is 100% correct. I am so glad that all y'all are so well versed in your Bibles. We all know that God can't help us unless we ask him to help us. Well, he can't give infants faith through baptism either. Well, that goes without saying. Isn't it great how omnipotent our God is? It's impossible for God to have created the universe in six 24-hour days. Yes, siri. That don't make a lick of sense no how. People who believe that are just crazy. Hey, people can't rise from the dead, either. That's correct, Mundo. Could you imagine how screwed up our tax system would be if people were rising from the dead all up in here? 
It'd be ridiculous. But don't forget that our God can do anything. Wait a minute, doesn't Paul say that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that our faith would be in vain? Well, we all know how you can't take scripture literally. Well, how does that work? Does that mean that the Bible can't be trusted? All right, everyone. That right there is what we call a hater. We all know what to do with those types of people. We throw them under the bus. Ushers, take him away. Hey, hey, let me go. Let me Hands off me. I'm, I will have you arrested. I can die. Let's hear for the Almighty God. Purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Hello, I'm Brandon House of WorldviewRadio.com. WorldviewRadio.com is the world's premier biblical worldview online radio network. And now you can take it with you on the go with our free app that you can download free of charge at WorldviewWeekend.com forward slash APP. That's WorldviewWeekend.com forward slash APP. And you'll hear the daily and weekly radio programs by people like T.A. McMahon of The Brian Call, Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith, Usama Dakdok and The Truth About Islam, Noise of Thunder with Chris Pinto, Justin Peters and the Justin Peters Program, Crosstalk, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and Prophecy Today, Jesse Johnson with the Bible Teaching Program of Emmanuel, Dr. John Whitcomb, and Mike Gendron of Proclaiming the Gospel Radio, as well as Carl Tycrib with Forcing Change Radio. All of these biblically-based radio programs are available free of charge at worldviewradio.com and through our free app at worldviewweekend.com forward slash app. Biblical Worldview Radio that you can take with you on the go. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if you're not getting sound, in-depth biblical teaching like you're hearing tonight. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, uh, in the middle of the homepage, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it. To the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you'd like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do and keep doing what we're doing without it. All right, here's the balance of today's lecture on the Epistle of First John by Pastor Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. Here we go. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah Pastor, why can't we just start with... Uh looking at churches that accept the creeds of the church. If they're a creedal church, wouldn't that be a good place to start and say we could build on that? Yeah, that's a great start. 
Absolutely. If a church subscribes to the ecumenical creeds, that church is at least saying, look, we're, we're at least interested in believing what the church for 2,000 years has believed. Yeah. A church that rejects the creeds is saying, we're not interested in 2,000 years of history. And that's really the ethos you get in, Amer- in American evangelicalism. Um, they look at the Word of God as if they were the first generation to ever receive the Word of God. And they look at it like, well, let's ignore 2,000 years of history and believe what we want to believe out of this book, irrespective of what 2,000 years worth of theologians have thought and taught, what 2,000 years worth of Christians throughout the globe have confessed. And therein lies the strength of the creed. Um, They're called the ecumenical creeds because uh, they're what draws Christendom together still to this day. At least those churches that confess the creeds are in the small c Catholic line of the historic church. So thanks, Bob, for that. That's a good point. I wanted to make a point about there are churches that we've, well, we're very close to people who are in these churches, and they say, you confess sin, and that is so exclusive. It makes people feel bad. We should focus on Jesus. And yet we just read last week, if you say you have no sin, the truth is not in you. Yes. So I think, as you just said, it's all in Scripture. What what I'd like to do is keep it on my heart so when I hear this, I can at least acknowledge. Yeah, you bring up a wonderful point. You know, one of the things that, uh, as we talk to people who are new to our church or visiting our church for the first time, uh, one of the most offensive things universally, and I, and I understand it, um, is when they come into our sanctuary, what's the first thing we do? Confess our sins. Yeah. Well, right after calling on God's name, we confess our sins. And that's the point. We have just invoked the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the true holy God, and asked Him to be present there for us. And immediately recognizing that we are in the presence of the Holy One, we confess our sins. Now, while that's deeply offensive to Bible-based Christians, they seem to have forgotten that very passage of the Bible that says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So who could actually be offended when a church wants to lead you into a confession of sins? No, not for me. I don't have any sins. You deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. I mean, that's where I say if you're really offended enough to not come back, then you're not ready for what we have anyway. Because what we have is forgiveness for broken people. And if you're not a broken person who needs forgiveness, then you're in the wrong place. Whatever it is you think you need, I can probably help you get there. You know, you want some positive pep rally talk on a Sunday morning? I can point you to a church. Yes. I would say that Bible-believing Christians have forgotten the Old Testament and have forgotten the purpose of the tabernacle. And when they walk through the gate, the only one way to the Father was through the sacrifice, was through Christ. The only way that they had access to God was through the sacrifice. So if you don't have Christ, you don't have any, you have no relationship to the Father at all. So you have to have that. And you have to realize it was your sins that brought that all about. Absolutely. Thank you for that point. And it's true, it's that, that is such a true point, and it's exactly what John is saying, that whoever denies this, uh, he says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. And what that means is no one who denies the Son has the true God. That's the bottom. So you can't, you can't pray with, with anyone who denies the Son because you're not praying to the same God. You're praying to the Father through the Son. They may even say, oh, we're praying to the Father too. No, you're not. You're praying to a different entity that you've happened to name the Father. Okay, maybe even a figment of your imagination. But John says right here, no one who denies the Son has the Father. So, you know, if a Jewish person who denies the Son or denies that Jesus is the Christ says, let's pray to our Father together, you would say, no. Whoever you're calling Father is not the same God I call Father. Because the God I call Father is the Father of Jesus, who is the Christ. Right? Okay. Yes? Yes. Um, the one other thing that I would mention about other churches that confess the creed is that they have these three authorities. 
um, scripture, tradition, and human reason. And that, and for that reason, they can reinterpret the creed. They can rewrite it. They can, and I've watched it happen. They can, you know, and this is the only place we've been in our 50 years of searching together where that doesn't happen, or at least it tries not to happen. (laughs) Right. Thank you for bringing that up. Well, uh, while having a creedal church is a good start, the other side of the spectrum is anyone can manipulate the words of the creed to mean just about anything they want, particularly when their church is built on the three pillars you said of uh, Scripture, tradition, and uh, reason. And this, by the way, is, is very important because one of the things that defines us as Lutherans and was defined of us in the 16th century is we said the definition of who we are is we want to be apostolic. We want to hold the same faith as the apostles, no more, no less. Now, in order to hold the same faith as the apostles, no more, no less, where do you go? Scripture, the New Testament, written by the apostles. This is what they say. So thus, sola scriptura. That becomes our sole source and norm for all doctrine because the New Testament apostolic writings become the key that governs that which is apostolic and that which isn't. So if someone wants to add to or take away from from the apostolic teachings, we cling to those apostolic teachings, the scriptures, and say, you're wrong. You've added to it. You've taken away from it. And that, by the way, is what distinguishes uh, the Lutheran church and really arguably much of the historic church. Um, There's a place for tradition. There's a place for what the church fathers have said. There's a place for what pastors say. But all of that, as important as it is, has to be always tested against the Scriptures, which are the greater authority, the only authority. Okay, yes, Dave. This just brings up to me the unique uh, relationship between Jesus and God, and and that uh, if you preach Jesus, you, you get access to the heart of God. And I'm just so glad John keeps emphasizing this right here. Um, I think for me in my past, uh, because of the dull preaching that I was under for a lot of years, I didn't understand sin at all. And I would just think, what is this confessing all about? You know, and if you don't have the law preached with surgical skill, which I think you and Pastor Hull do very uniquely here, you don't understand sin very well. And if you don't have that presented to you on a consistent basis, you don't understand the need to confess. And uh, uh, it goes hand in hand. Yes. Uh, law and gospel and preaching. It, well, exactly. If, as soon as you say, well, we're just going to be a gospel church. We're not going to talk about the law. We're not going to talk about God's will. And we're not going to talk about sin. It's just a gospel church. Guess how long people care about the gospel in those circumstances? How long at all? Jesus died for you. Well, whoop-de-doo. You know, I, I, that's our sinful nature d- does just that. Does just that. And this is why Walther, uh, one of our 19th century theologians, says that the law must be preached in its full sternness and the gospel in its full sweetness. If you don't have these two, you're going to lose whichever one you leave out. And if you do the gospel all the time, you're going to end up losing, of course you've lost the law, but eventually you're going to lose the gospel itself. If you do the law all the time, Not only have you left the gospel, but guess what? You're also going to lose the law. And that's what the problem is with with evangelicalism. They don't do the law right. They just gum you to death and nag you to death and do this and do that and improve and improve. And how's your walk? And how's your, and that's not the law. I mean, the law says all of that and then waits for your answer. And when it's, well, well, not so good, then death, right? Then the wages of sin is death. You will die in your trespasses. Right? That's what the law does. And you never hear that. I mean, you never hear that. Um, so you have to have the, the law in its full sternness and the gospel in its full sweetness. And sometimes after some smoke and law, you'll be sitting in the pew and you'll be going like, jeez, why, why is he doing that? Okay. 
we'll hang out for another 30 seconds and you'll see why. Because the gospel's actually going to taste like something, you know? The gospel's actually going to be something you're thirsty for and you crave to hear. And that's the point of good law preaching. Um, just going back to the passage of the Antichrist, it almost seems like a simpler time when there wasn't any denominations to worry about. It was the Christian church and there was only one as a whole. And just for the term, the Antichrist, is that for people that had heard the gospel of Christ and then rejected it? Either they joined the church and left later or heard it and didn't want anything to do with it? I'm just trying to understand the Antichrist term. So if someone had never heard it preached yet, then that wouldn't be them, right? Let, let me, uh, maybe, maybe you can have the mic nearby and I'll do the best I can to kind of answer your questions. And then if I don't, you can, you can tell me what I didn't answer. Let's just go straight to John's context, okay? Um, I, I would, I would disagree with the categorization that times were simpler and easier then. And why I would disagree with that is because virtually every single book of the New Testament that we have is written because there is some great crisis and heresy going on in the church. Um, to the point where if there weren't already factions and denominations, there most certainly will be in the next generation of the church. And that is exactly what happens. Um, sometimes we have in our minds that denominations began in the 16th century. That's wrong. Denominations were around from the very beginning. They go all the way up through the 16th century. It's more simple, I, I think, in this way, that John's the pastor of this church, and John's the uh, apostle, and John's the guy who uh, was at the foot of the cross when Jesus died and laid on Jesus' breast the night when he was betrayed. Um, and when John speaks, you know, it's just razor-sharp clear which, <laughs> which side you want to be on. You know, yeah. So in that sense, I would agree with you. Um, now, in terms of the Antichrist, what John is speaking to specifically are those who were Christian, but who have, uh, as, as he says in verse 19, they went out from us, departed from the Orthodox Christian faith. And how so? Well, in specific, they are now denying that Jesus is the Christ. Okay? So he's labeling that teaching and them as Antichrists. Uh, now, does that have broader application, even in John's context? Well, of course, because the Jewish people who are rejecting that Jesus is the Christ um, fall under this same condemnation, even in John's day. So there you would see it within Christendom, if you will, and outside of Christendom, the title fits. Does that thank help? You. Okay. Yes, thank you. Yes, Barry. John's talking about those that deny Christ. Now, if you could just comment uh, a little bit on the opposite side of that, which is those who confess Christ. I think in Corinthians it says you can only confess Christ at, with the Holy Spirit. Is there an in-between? Is there something where it's an ambiguous state? Or, you know, if you could just comment on that. And, and did these antichrists that we're talking about, did they once confess Christ and then they fell into a state of denying him? Yes, in specific, they were one with the church and then they went out from us. So they were confessing that Jesus is the Christ, then they ceased to confess that Jesus was the Christ. That's what's happening concretely. We can see that from the text. Um, as we will see even more, uh, made more apparent in chapter 3, I mean, made so stark that your jaw will hit your chest, is that you are in or out, that you are confessing Christ or denying Christ that there are only two camps that all the world fall in. Um, there is no seeker, no person in the middle, no fence-sitter, no ponderer, no nothing. All of that, John would say, are you confessing Christ? Well, no, not yet. Then you are denying him. Yeah. Uh, John, as with the other apostles, very much white and black, very much not postmodern, very much not like, oh, I don't know, what do you think, guy? Um, you're in, you're out. And, uh, that's, so, so let's pick up, uh, and go just a little further then. Uh, look at, look at 23. Now we've covered no one who denies the Son has the Father. And then positively he says, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 
He doesn't say whoever confesses the Father has the Father. He says whoever confesses the Son has the Father. And that, by the way, is why the Orthodox Christian Church has always been a Christ-centered church. Our worship and our confession is Christ-centered because whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Remember, Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father and it will be enough. And Jesus says, well, here he is. I've hit him the whole time. Uh, no, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So Jesus himself, when we want to see the Father, says, look at me. Then you'll know the Father. And John repeats that theology here. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. So John is bringing his congregation back home that, look, this matters. And it matters because the promise that you have been given from the Father through the Son to you is the promise of eternal life. So don't be deceived. Don't go off with these folks. You're going to lose eternal life if you do. Take a look at verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And that's just these who went out from us, these uh, false, pe uh, false believers. They're now trying to deceive the, cr the rest of the flock. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing, again, the charisma, that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, what John is not saying is, so ignore everything I've written to you and everything I'm going to write to you since you have no need for anyone to teach you. John's point is, you have no need that anyone, namely those who want to deceive you, should teach you. Okay? Uh, he's saying, you don't need these people to teach you the new secret knowledge about how Jesus really isn't the Christ. Okay, You don't need them to teach you that. Why? Because you have been anointed, you have been chrismed, you have been Christed in baptism, and through this you have been given everything you need. And that's why he says simply uh, that if you... Uh, if you... If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and the Father. Abide in your baptismal faith is shorthand for what John's saying. Yes. Yes, Neil. Oh, yes. Um, how do you relate what we've been talking about, the Antichrist, uh, um, as John discusses it here? And I'm thinking about the traditional theological position of the Lutheran, Orthodox Lutheran Church, such as our, our own and the Wisconsin Synod, uh, regarding Second Thessalonians 2 yes, and the position of the Antichrist there. That confuses me a little bit. What's our position on that? Uh, he is the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians. And what is uh, unique to him in that context is that he s sits in the temple of God as if he were God. Okay? Now, what the uh, what Paul means by that, what the church has held by that, what the Lutherans held and confessed, is that the Antichrist, uh, in the proper sense, is he who dwells within the church, within the temple of God, convincing himself that he is God. This is the man of lawlessness. This is the Antichrist. By way of John, he is going to deny that Jesus is the Christ. And he's going to deny that in such a way that while giving it lip service, Jesus is the Christ, he's going to take the meat of that away. Um, he's going to take the gospel itself away. So goes the logic and argument of our reformers and their confessions. So that uh, they say in the, in the Lutheran confessions that the office of the papacy, not any one specific man, but the office of the papacy fulfills the biblical criteria for Antichrist or man of lawlessness. Because the one who sits in the, in the seat of the Pope sits in the temple of God, that is, in the church of God, and he acts as if he were God. 
He creates rules and laws that go above and beyond what God's own Word says. He negates God's Word by His rules and laws. And if you want to see uh, the, the Roman uh, Pope and the Roman hierarchy negate even the Gospel itself, uh, look up online, you can find it for free, Canons and Decrees of the Council of Trent. This was the council held immediately after the Reformation. In this document, they basically anathematize the statement that you are justified by grace through faith apart from works. If you believe that, you are of the devil, and that teaching is of the devil. The Lutheran reformers looked at that and said, that is the definition of Antichrist. Okay. Um, it is also the definition of Antichrist to bind men's consciences where the Word of God does not bind them, as Rome does with its additional teachings. So as, as John says, while there is an Antichrist, there are also many Antichrists. While the Lutheran Reformers uh, recognize that the seat of the Pope is the Antichrist, the position of the man of lawlessness, that's not to say there aren't many antichrists within Christendom and outside of Christendom. As John says, uh, anyone who denies uh, that Jesus is the Christ. Thanks for bringing that up. Okay, let's uh, go just a little further and finish this section out. Um, just picking up at verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as His anointing teaches you, again, as His charisma, as His christening, His baptism of you teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in Him. And that's John's whole point. Abide in the baptismal faith that was given you. Abide in the belief that Jesus is the Christ. Going backward now through the epistle, Abide in the family of God. Abide in love for one another. Abide in His Word and the truth of His doctrine. And abide in that confession which says, I am a sinner, I confess my sins, and I need to be cleansed by Jesus' blood. Abide in all of these things and avoid those who would take you away from them. So far, so good? We've got time for maybe a question, if there is one. Dr. Van Voorhees? With the talk about abiding and uh, antichrists and, and coming in and out, how do we deal with people who stop abiding? Can they abide again? And can someone become an antichrist and then be rechristened? It's just from a, a sort of our own psychology, it's kind of scary uh, to think about people who maybe, or ourselves even, coming in and out, and uh, how many times can you can you do that before your your card is taken away? Um, I, I don't know. However, you could deal with that. Well, we continually uh, confess our sins and confessing even that, uh, you know, uh, the first commandment, right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Um, we recognize that we fear, love, and trust in things other than God, sometimes even in doctrines or beliefs or ideas that don't come from God. We continue to confess these things, and God in His infinite mercy continues to blot these things out and lead us along, right? Upon baptism, uh, we're not all, all of a sudden, uh, sinless, faultless theologians. Certainly not. Okay, now maybe if I could rephrase your question, see if I have it accurately. Is it possible for someone who knows the Christian faith to fall away from the Christian faith and be restored to it? Fair enough. Um, the answer to that has always been yes in the church, um, that God works even through this. And uh, it's been pointed out that uh, Peter, for example, who is with the Lord, who was the Lord's disciple and catechumen for not less than three years, on the big night of his catechism exam, you know, on the big night of, okay, it's time to perform, show us what you really believe, uh, he rejects the Lord, doesn't he? And denies him three times. 
If Peter can be restored by Jesus, then so also can other Christians, even those Christians who explicitly reject and deny Jesus, even three times up in a row. Um, they even they can be forgiven and restored. So we have that uh, comfort that the gospel even covers false doctrine, apostasy, rejection. But as with Peter, the important part is that Peter is brought to genuine repentance and then he is absolved. Judas is the counterpart of Peter, isn't he? Because Judas also denies the Lord. And yet Judas rejects that true repentance and chooses for himself, instead of true repentance and being forgiven, he chooses for himself that false repentance that ends in despair. And he chose to end his own life. So Peter and Judas become antitypes, of, if you will, of those who fall away. This is what it looks like for one to be restored. This is what it looks like for one to cut himself off from the restoration. Does that help? Okay. That's all the time we have today. The Lord be with you. So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.